If you want to stand with Ukraine, start at DescentPins.com, where you can find resources and three new t-shirts designed by Ukrainian artists. 100% of the profits will be donated to organizations supporting Ukrainian refugees and independent media in Ukraine. Visit DescentPins.com. That's D-I-S-S-E-N-T-P-I-N-S dot com. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. Science doesn't have a clear answer as to why we dream, largely because there's no objective way to study them. Dreams are highly subjective experiences, and animal dream studies are impossible. In the April issue, Michael W. Clune, author of Game Life and White Out, writes about the nascent field of dream incubation. He uses the Dormio, a device that offers users the opportunity to shape their dreams in the hypnagogic phase of sleep, that transitional phase between wakefulness and rest. I spoke with Clune about his experiences, as well as creativity, psychedelics, addiction, and society's fretful relationship to ritual and dreams. Your piece is, I think it's really beautiful, and it's this very, there's some very intense uh, meditations on what it means to dream, to be creative, to be conscious, what we experience in life. But these are all questions opened by the, the Dormio. And so could you explain what that is and how it works? Yeah, so the Dormio is a device that Adam Har Horowitz and his collaborators at MIT, at the MIT Media Lab, created to do what they call dream incubation. And what that means is it's a means of shaping dream content. And I'll just explain how it works real quick. First of all, the, the phase of, of, of dreaming that it interacts with is hypnagogia, which is sort of the first state of, of what happens when you, when you begin to fall asleep. And it's characterized by vivid imagery, often a sense of motion, and so forth. And so what the Dormio does is uh, it's, a, it's a device you wear on your hand and it is connected to a website. And you, you begin by recording a message to yourself. In my case, in the case that Adam suggested for our initial uh, session was you know, think about trees. And when you begin to fall asleep, the device will play that message to you. And then the device will actually, because when you begin to enter hypnagogia, your fingers sort of have what they call hypnic jerks, which is sort of like an, a, a real rapid opening and closing motion. And your pulse, there's changes in your pulse and so forth, all of which the device detects. And then at a parameter specified by you uh, at a certain amount of time into hypnagogia, the device will sound an alarm, basically a gentle waking, wake you up and prompt you to uh, describe what you were seeing, which it records. And then you can later on download that and, and look at that. So it's basically a means of capturing and increasing our consciousness of an interaction with hypnagogia. Right. And 
as you know, in the piece, and I think everyone kind of knows this, but there are a lot of limits on the amount of research we can do into dreams. We don't we don't really know why we dream. There are different explanations for that. Even, I mean, in terms of the phases of sleep, you describe some of like the movements, but typically when you hear of hypnagogia, it's it's in terms of like hypnagogic hallucinations, which are kind of terrifying. And um, so how, I mean, how is that different from what the dormio is kind of settling you into? Well, it's it's very interesting in that it's something that I wasn't really that aware of before I started to become conscious of it through my interactions with the dormio, which is, and, and you know, this is interesting. One of the things that Adam would say to me is don't ask yourself whether you're asleep or not, or whether you're dreaming or not. Just sort of like describe what you're seeing. And when you do, you know, what happens is when the, the dormio would wake me up, I suddenly became conscious of what I'd been experiencing. And the way I describe it in the piece and the way that I experience it is you'll be lying in your bed, you'll be thinking various thoughts, trying to think about trees, for example, as I was trying to, you know, focus my hypnagogic experience. And then all of a sudden, there'll be these, these visualizations will start to happen. It'll be very gradual and, and you'll just be in this space that is, you know, this tripped out, this totally tripped out, yeah, hallucinatory zone in which in my case, on that first occasion, I was sort of moving through these spaces and, um, you know, experiencing these really vivid and intense images. And it was really, it was just completely tripped out. <laughs> it is the best way I can describe it. Yeah, and I actually want to talk about that tripped outness, and sp- specifically in relation to drugs and to different types of altered states, to borrow the title of a Ken Russell film. But Adam Har Horowitz, who's co-creator, he's he's the the lead designer and the lead of this team, the and he's collaborators. Designer. But he's 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 the 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 head of, uh, and he invented this as part of his master's thesis in collaboration with others. He, he, he likes me to emphasize that. Okay. So Adam Har Horowitz, he talks about this, his desire to create what you call a dream incubation community, which, you know, it's, it's Silicon Valley, everything's social. Um, you focus on the larger implications and obstacles, but I'd be curious to hear more about what his vision for this community looks like. Did he give any specifics? He's, you know, what, what he tended to focus on when in, in our conversations is he really saw his role as being a minimal one in terms of providing people with these devices to enable them to experiment in any way they saw fit, right? In order to gain insight, in order to extend our consciousness into those areas in which we're conscious, but we're, we're not connecting, most of us are not connecting our experiences and dreams and hypnagogia and so forth with our waking experience. There's a real kind of gap there. And so Adam is, is with this device trying to facilitate a kind of community, people who are able to use these devices to, to open up this phase of their experience. Beyond that, he didn't really seem that interested in specifying what this community would look like or or how people would 
share or exchange their dreams, how they would use, you know, online tools, for example, to share their dream experience and so forth. So that was sort of undefined. And at least in my conversations with him, and he may well have have thought more about about this. And, but in, in my, the sense I got was was one of him interested in being minimal about it and in really allowing communities the freedom to develop once he provided these devices, even as, as the Coors Beer example that I write about makes plain, he was very and is very aware and alarmed by the potential for abuses of this technology and for kind of commercial applications that would, to his mind, and I think I completely agree with him on this, that would you know, sort of corrupt this experience. Right. Because you you describe how Horowitz was contacted by, it was, it was Coors Beer, right? Yep, Coors Beer. Yep. Coors <laughs> Beer, which is, first of all, really Coors? They're coming to, how did they get his number first? But they are coming to him and being like, hey, can we start like, can we try to like, put a put an ad in a dream could we kind of like suggest drinking cores to people <laughs> in their sleep which is which is it's, it's like well of course i mean look at the world around us of course that's going to be like the second thought after you you know you yeah, oh, yeah totally totally how do we monetize this yeah how do we monetize this but i'm curious you know with the question of methods when it comes to like sharing recording dreams you know outside of like some sort of unmoderated community where people could post, I don't know, 280 character uh, <laughs> sentences or so of, of things that they've experienced. As you discussed, the, the study of dreaming is inherently muddled by its dependence on language. And, and when you talked about describing your hypnagogic dream sequence to Horowitz, I found myself wondering, what was he actually producing on his end? Like, is it just a transcript? Have these researchers developed any kind of like system or a system of language when it comes to codifying or comparing dreams? Yeah, it's a great question. What he produced, you know, what, what, what the Dormio session yields is a recording and a transcript of what I would say immediately upon waking in describing what my experiences were. And, and I would ordinarily forget that immediately. And Adam provided me with the with the transcript of what I was saying, which which then enabled me to remember and to sort of explore and recreate what I was. But it was it was it, it, so so. What you get is your own language upon being awakened when when you're prompted to describe what you're seeing or describe what you're experiencing. Now, in terms of codifying dreams, there's actually you know one of the people one of Adam's mentors is a guy named Robert Stickold, who has been doing dream research at Harvard University for, for a long time. And he and a collaborator named Antonio Zadra wrote a book called uh, When Brains Dream. And in that, they describe the efforts of dream researchers to create databases, basically categorizing and taxonomizing different kinds of dreams. And, and so it's possible to do that. And there's a, there's a real question about how much, you know, what you really gain from that, from, you know, how many people will dream about airplanes or, 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 or how many people will be, dreams will be in, influenced by current events and so forth. But yeah, there is, there, there are a bunch of methods that people use to sort of categorize dreams. What Adam is more in, was more interested in, in his, in the materials I looked at surrounding this project 
was sort of the other angle of this. We sort of that element of dreaming that resists categorization or taxonomy, which is an interest on the mind's creativity, the kind of relentless creativity and the capacity of the mind to generate totally idiosyncratic and singular kinds of images and experiences and to present challenges to our categories and you know the boxes that we want to put dream experiences into and that to me was really very interesting and and part of what i like about the dormio method is that it is using your own vocabulary and your own language that's and that, and that's kind of you know part of the kind of minimal hands-off philosophy that animates adam's project which is he's not really doing a whole he's not really and the Dormio certainly isn't doing anything other than recording your own language as you emerge from that state. But isn't that sort of replicating the problem with dream research to a certain extent because it is kind of subjective? I mean, I'm just thinking of when when one of the cues you used with the Dormio was quake because, you know, you wanted to see how your your dreams would render the 1996 computer game quake. Right. You know, like we, we, as you write what it would do inside you. You you dream something that's not quite quake. You, and you say you're it's like this focus on redness. Yeah. And the, and there are there are colors that were not in the game that were in your dream of the game. Right. And and I'm just curious like would that be something that could be picked up on like the the fact that you're kind of dreaming about something but it's wrong <laughs> would that be able to be like taxonomized in some way or b- come to mean anything it's an interesting question and the basic question of the subjectivity of dream research is you basically just have to accept and this is this is really interesting to me you have to let go of the idea that what the goal of research is, is objectivity, is a kind of perspective from nowhere, right? A kind of third person perspective. It is impossible to get a third person perspective on dreaming. And, you know, an example that Stickold uh, uh, writes about in his book is the example of animals dreaming. So we know animals, if you ask most of us, uh, I have a dog, I, I think that my dog dreams, right? She, she seems to make the kinds of motions and sounds that would suggest to me that when she's asleep, she's having some kind of dream state. We have no objective proof that dogs dream because a dream is definitionally an experience. And we don't have any way of having a dog communicate that experience to us, right? So, so with dreaming, it's really not about, it's kind of a, a fascinating scientific research subject because it goes against the grain of a lot of what we think of as science in that the goal is not to get further away from subjectivity and correct it with reference to objective states of affairs, but rather to train ourselves, to discipline ourselves, to create methods for our subjective experience to become richer and fuller and deeper and for us to create bridges between our conscious waking experience and the conscious experience that we have at night when we're dreaming. Yeah, no, and I think, no, I can't remember the exact study, but I feel like a couple of years ago there was something like, oh yeah, physicists agree with Eastern medicine that actually everything is super, time is super subjective. And it's like, well, yeah, of course. But 
anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, 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 you know, the scientific and, and philosophical problem that's closest to the dream thing is the research on consciousness, right? Which which is presents the, exactly the same problem. Like, there's no way to get a third person perspective on consciousness, and so you you just kind of have to accept it as irreducibly subjective. Now, that doesn't mean it can't be intersubjective, right? It doesn't mean that I can't bring my dreams, put them in a form that you might read about and then might make you more aware of your dreams or, or, or whatever, right? That I think is, is totally possible. And I, I would just distinguish between sort of the, the, um, the goal of objectivity, which seems really elusive when it comes to dreaming and the goal of intersubjectivity of creating and exploring what can really happen when we are expressive about our dreams, when our dreams become part of our identity, when our dreams become part of who we are, when we have what, what people have called the 24-hour mind as opposed to the 16-hour mind, right? How does that, our sense of our, ourselves, how does our sense of our communities, how does our sense of art, how does that change? Right. And I mean, you you write about how your experience with the Dormio or at least playing with hypnagogia has really impacted your understanding of sleep and consciousness. And you're alluding to this before. And in fact, you said that it was so unsettling that you had to put the dormio away for a bit. And could you say like what that was like to discover? I mean, did you find any precedent for it in your research or in talking to other dormio testers? I did not, although I suspect it is, you know, my guess is I'm not alone in this. It's not something that I've really seen elsewhere, but so my, my experience was, and it's, it's shaped by my own personal background, which is I have a tendency to anxiety. I've occasionally struggled with insomnia uh, over the course of my, of my life. And, and one of the things that was really interesting, but also kind of unsettling is for me when I'm going to sleep, I'm trying to settle my mind. I'm trying to calm my mind. I'm trying to bring it close to unconsciousness gradually. But what you realize when you start working with the domio and you start exploring hypnagogia is that conscious experience doesn't pause or stop. It actually revs up. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like as soon as my thoughts, my conscious thoughts are slowing down, all of a sudden they become translated or transformed or metamorphosized into these fluid images that are very intense and that are very kind of, now it's not like sort of unpleasant, but I began to get this sense of the mind never stops. The consciousness never stops. It's always going on. And it, it just kind of freaked me out a little bit, not to the extent that I was like, having panic attacks or anything like that, but it was just kind of unsettling, right? And and I write about that experience. Yeah, and I, I mean, you repeatedly come back with this sense of fright or being unsettled. You know, sometimes it's kind of like existential and then other times it's, you know, maybe a little bit more physical almost. And of course, it's hard not to think about, you know, I've read your memoir, Whiteout, which is about the purity of your life in which you were addicted to heroin. And yep. you write, I experience a vague horror. I feel slightly and for the first time how one might long for nothingness. And I mean, I just I felt a twinge of skepticism about that claim because you never experienced a longing for nothingness since I would say a, a similar longing for nothing that seems to be present in your descriptions of your relationship with your habit and whiteout. So I guess 
I'm less interested in you confirming this reading than in hearing you talk about how you see the relationship, if any, between habit and dreaming. Yeah, well, it's a it's a great question. I mean, as as regards the nothingness question, my experience with with addiction was really, you know, this this what I wanted was this incredible high, this incredible intensification of life and a kind of being saved from the drabness of ordinary existence that, you know, was, was, was false and so forth. But the desire for actually having everything stopping, which I think is from the outside, other people, I think, have often um, described addiction in that way. And some people have experienced it in that way. I just did not experience it in that particular way. And, and, and that was something that I became aware of with this. But to your question about the relation between habit and dreaming, which is a great question, I write at the end of this piece on dreams about ways that I think we can sort of work with our dreams or use dream incubation devices or methods to change our dreams or to um, direct our dreams in certain avenues. And it reminded me a lot of my experience in recovery, which is that it's the question of how do you really change yourself, right? You don't change yourself consciously. You don't, if you say to yourself, if I were to say to myself 20 years ago when I, when I stopped using, okay, I'm not going to do heroin anymore, right? You know, everyone knows that's not going to work, right? You can have the thought and very strongly, I do not want to do this. I want to stop this. But you're just going to do it anyway the next day. What you have to do is you have to intervene at the level of your habits. You have to intervene at areas of your mind that may be conscious, but that you don't have control over. Maybe that's the best way to put it. How do I change myself knowing that much of myself is outside of my control? And that's the kind of question uh, to me of dream incubation also is how do I present my dreaming mind with suggestions or gentle nudges or movements that then can potentially either bring me closer to my, my conscious waking self, closer to my dreaming self, or perhaps to give my allow my uh, my dreaming mind to meditate or ruminate on something that uh, occupies my my waking mind. And so I found that effort to sort of influence or shape our dreams to be interestingly, and much as my own personal experience, not that far from the effort and recovery to shape and transform gradually our habits. Right. I mean, because I think just reading your piece, it seems like, or at least I felt that some of the fear and anxiety that you experience, you know, it's not just existential, but it could arise from being in a physically different state than wakefulness and dreaming, just like how, you know, drugs alter our brain chemistry and therefore our perception or our heartbeat, many other things. It seems to me like opening up oneself to hypnagogia could have a profound physiological effect on us. And in a way, I mean, I don't want to like cite the example of like the the famous yogi who can control his heartbeat mm -hmm. and get it down to like two beats a minute yeah, you know yeah. but it, it is it seems somewhat similar where this could be like again to try out a cliche of like mind over matter if if someone really got the hang of dream incubation yeah no i think that i think that's right and I think that's the ideal, and it may well be that some people are able to do that. And in fact, uh, the area of dream research where people 
come closest to that kind of ideal is in lucid dream, uh, training oneself to dream lucidly so that you're aware that you're dreaming in that environment and you can sort of make alterations to the environment. For whatever reason, that has, has and I've, I've had experiences of lucid dreams, but I um, that interested me less than experiences with the Dormio precisely because with hypnagogia, it's really an experience of consciousness without control. And I'm just very interested in that. And I think that there's something, I mean, this is a sort of intuition that I think a lot of us have, which is we know more than we can say, or we know, you know, there, there's a kind of wisdom in our bodies and our minds that is not identical to our, to what we can control in our minds. And so, and one of the things I learned with dream incubation, and I talk about that in the final sort of experiment I do, is that uh, there's a limit. I've encountered a limit to how much I can influence my dreams. My unconscious has its own interests. It has its own obsessions. It has its own sort of life almost. And for me, it's, it's more about a negotiation between my waking self and my dreaming self rather than an attempt to bring my dreaming self under the control of my waking self, if that makes sense. I'm thinking of, you know, the first basketball dream you describe where the basketball sort of becomes like a texture and it kind of expands out and there's there are these geometric patterns. And I think a lot of people who have willingly undergone the use of psychedelics, you know, that was sort of their intent, right, to expand consciousness and kind of give themselves over to something. But also in that they would some people report seeing quote unquote sacred geometry, like seeing certain patterns, certain forms when they're in that state. So I guess, do you feel like, and again, that comes back to this question of drugs, you know, physically altering brain chemistry, et cetera. So, I mean, do you feel like there's, there's some connection here or perhaps even it's kind of like a therapeutic connection here in the way that, you know, psychedelics are kind of increasingly being used in experiments to kind of, you know, help people with PTSD, trauma, et cetera. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, and, and, and one of the interesting things I found is that, and I was told this by a number of different people, is that, you know, I, I wouldn't say everyone, but, but, but a lot of people interested in the dream research are also interested in psychedelics and psychedelic research. There's a, there seems to be a real overlap for precisely the reasons that you're describing. You know, my, my own take on that, you know, um, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm in recovery and I don't, I don't, I haven't used, you know, drugs of any kind for, for 20 years, just for my own personal recovery. But I did use the psychedelics, you know, a long time ago and they, they um, you know, they're not, I, I've heard it speculated that you can't get addicted to psychedelics. I don't know if that's true or not. Certainly I couldn't imagine getting addicted. It, it doesn't seem to have that addictive kind of potential in the way that other drugs that I've experienced do. But I found, this again, this is just my experience, in psychedelic, using psychedelics, I felt that hypnagogia was just way more powerful and immersive, like, like by many orders of magnitude. And, and also, it was that state of consciousness without control. So in some ways, I really, you know, I, I would almost, you know, encourage people who may be interested in psychedelics to give the dormio a try, you know what I'm talking about? Like, like in, in that if, if 
I, I, I just personally found it to be a much more powerful absorptive hallucinatory experience than anything I experienced with LSD or mescaline or mushrooms or, or, or anything of that kind of psychedelic drugs. And I think there's also with hypnagogia or with dreams, there's more of a, a or organic root between, you know, I mean, it, it's just how you are. This is just natural, you know? And, and I think there's a kind of richness and benefit to that that seems to me uh, really interesting and distinct potentially from psychedelics. So that's just, but that, again, that's just my own sense of things. And certainly the interest in dreams we're seeing, which is really notable across the culture. And I was talking to my mom about this. My mom is someone who trained as a Jungian analyst in the eighties. And she told me that in the eighties, it was this other moment, at least in her lifetime, when there was this large sort of upswelling of interest in dreams, a lot of it around Jung's theories. And, and, and she got really into it. And she's still very, very into uh, Jungian analysis, which I find fascinating. But I think we're, and she said, you know, I think this is another moment where we're back just, just fascinated by dreams again. And I think you're right. It is accompanied by or goes along with this renewed interest across, you know, medical communities, uh, artists, filmmakers, so forth in, in psychedelics. So, and I think it's kind of, you know, I think it's interesting and exciting, right? I think that it's, it's also maybe a, a reaction to, you know, the way our, our world has increasingly become corporatized and become directed along these very predictable channels. I think people have a hunger for a kind of spiritual experience, a kind of creative experience that, that resists that kind of capture. Yeah, I, I would I would definitely agree with that. I think there's, because everything is so regimented and your options are increasingly so limited financially, just in terms of social mobility, what, whatever you want to call it, it is you know, becoming a psychonaut, yeah. <laughs> to use to use an expression, is a nice alternative. And it is funny, of course, that one of the best known places for that, or uh, yes, one of the best known locales for that kind of experimentation, specifically with psychedelics and other things, is Burning Man. And is now that's completely overrun by Silicon Valley guys. <laughs> a little, a little dog wagging the tail. Um, but. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to go back to this question of ritual and you raise ritual early on and, you know, how different cultures have done similar things with dreams of dreaming. And I wonder if it could be, it could possibly give greater meaning and perhaps greater structure to our dreams if we developed our own ritual for, for, for dream incubating, you know, it could allow us to bathe in creativity or be therapeutic or just deal with fear in a way that would be more productive than, I don't know, the ways we have now, which are limited and also typically, you know, based in substances. So what, what do you imagine that ritual, if there were to be one, a contemporary ritual for dreaming, what would that look like? You know, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's such a central question, I think, you know, beyond dreams, you know, for our time which, and to me, it's all about religion. And, you know, so for the ancient practices of dream incubation were without any exception I can really think of or that I know of, religiously embedded, right? 
whether it's the Egyptian healing god or practices that the Greeks took from Egypt, uh, dream incubation practices, they're, they're embedded in religions. And one of the sort of interesting issues is, can you, and this is, so, so the question you're raising is in many ways parallel to the question of, of control ver- with dreams. Can you invent a ritual? In other words, rituals in, in religious contexts are often believed to be handed to us from the divine, right? We do this in imitation of the divine, or we do this because sacred scripture spells this out. If we were just sort of to sit around and come up with a ritual, my, 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 my question is, would it work the same way, right? I mean, how much do you have to believe that, like, can you bootstrap your way up to something like faith, from the ground. And so it's a deep philosophical and religious question. However, I think it's fascinating. I think, and I, I, I know, for example, um, there are uh, atheist communities who are interested in creating secular rituals around things like uh, funerals and so forth. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's, it's, it's not totally dissimilar to the question you're raising, which is how and what kind of rituals should we come up with or agree upon for dreams. I I write about people who've researched various um, indigenous groups, tribes who practice dream sharing, right? And, 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 you know, this is a traditional practice. And again, it's something that no one came up with consciously, but it had been handed down generation to generation within that tribal community. And so, how, how we imitate that as a very different, highly individualistic society is, is a real question. Right. But I think there are there's a way for ritual to develop without the benefit of religion. And I think there, you know, as we're at least American society starts to kind of decouple itself from religion or become less or a little bit more secular there's still things that there are imitations of older rituals. There's still, you know, throughout COVID rituals for burial changed. Like these things are fluid. These things are constantly in flux because of the the time. And I I mean, I, I'm, I'm just asking because I think, you know, it's, it's not so much because I think if people know something is good for them, they'll do it. (laughs) And they would undergo a ritual to do it. If they knew like those steps could become something hundred years from now. So assuming any of us are around, that would become like a ritual. Yeah, totally, totally. And and so I think I, I totally think it's possible. And I think, you know, I, I'd be very interested to see how it evolves. And, you know, but the, the question of religion, which dream research, you know, which, which, which is so fascinating in, in dream research, just given the closeness of historically religious visions and, and, and dreams and so forth um, is a real question. I'm not sure. And the question of whether the, we're moving towards a secular society, I think is a really open one. Um, I think, mm-hmm. you know, I think if you had asked me that 10 years ago, I would have a different answer than I might have now. I, I don't know. Some parts are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, we're just at a, such a very weird time. Yeah. But I think, you know, I, 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 I think, I think the past and I think the experiences of other societies do offer us some models that we can maybe think about and work with. And But I, I definitely love your suggestion, which is that a ritual 
embedding this kind of practice in ritual would would transform it, would give it a kind of uh, a, a different kind of meaning than if it's just this kind of very individualized, privatized kind of practice. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think it's a fascinating question. And I, I, I kind of look forward to seeing how and if that evolves. Yeah. And I have to ask, you know, now that, you know, this, this, this story went to press two months ago, and I don't know how many months before that you were actually reporting it, but I'd be curious to know if your time with the Dormio or other explorations you did for this piece have had any lasting effects on your sleep or your dreams. Yeah, you know, and I, I think they, ha- I think it has. I think that for me at least, the Dormio, and this is just my own experience, partly because I'm technical device. I, I don't come naturally to technical devices and I make all kinds of mistakes with, with dealing with technical devices. So it's not something, using the Dormio, continue to use that is not something that that was something I did, but I, I viewed it more as an initiation opening to hypnagogia. And since then, I've been able to be aware of and kind of dwell in that space of hypnagogia uh, in a way that I was not previously. And, and further going beyond hypnagogia, I write about it and, and, and talk about you know deeper sleep dreams, the kind of narrative type of dreams that we 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 think about most often when when we think about dreams. Just by being aware and doing dream research and writing this piece, I've become much more. I've remembered my dreams much much more than I had for years. And this is something that I remember my dreams all the time. Hmm. And it's it's really kind of I think it's awesome to be honest. I mean, it's just sort of like <laughs> You know, it's 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 just this like it really vivifies life. It 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 casts this like it's almost like this light source from this part of me that from this non-waking part of me that is is shining out into my waking life and illuminating it. And you know, I'll I'll, I'll be walking past a house or something and suddenly realize I dream you know I, I dreamed of a structure that's like it, and it'll just add that kind of significance and intensity to that moment in my day. And that happens all the time now. And I, and I think that's awesome. So it's like little acid flashbacks, but not quite. Yeah. Yeah. With sort of, <laughs> little, you know, a dream, dream. It sounds yeah. like, a, yeah. It's a, again, this sounds like a safer alternative to uh, magic mushrooms. Not that magic mushrooms are diff- dangerous, but yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it's so interesting, you know, that I think we use, and I, I'm the same way because I was talking about this as tripped out, that we use the vocabulary of drug experience to talk about dreams, which are really, you know, something that are natural and, you know what I mean, and and yeah. and, and part of us. So it's it's, to me, it just speaks to the extent to which our society has become distanced from our dreams. And part of it, I think, is because of, it's clearly related to Americans' problems problems with sleep, right? We're not just getting enough sleep. We're not we're not you know and 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 allowing ourselves to get into that zone as much. Yeah. No, I think I think it's, as long as you say anything, you could really sell anything. It's, it'd be like this improves your sleep, and it would sell far more because <laughs> if people are so obsessed with that. I mean, the whole like the mattress boom. Oh God. Like, I mean, yeah, obviously yeah, yeah, we're, totally. we're on a podcast, a little self, but it's still it's 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 absurd, but. I don't know. Well, if there are any ex- dreamers, write in letters at harpers.org. Let us know what you experience in your hypnagogic state. All right. Well, thank you. This was really profound. I'll use that word. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And thanks for your questions, which are, which were, which are fabulous. 
You've been listening to the Harper's Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. The New York Times called Harper's America's most interesting magazine. Receive elegant, insightful, and wry writing from the best journalists, essayists, critics, novelists, and poets every month in our print magazine, and gain access to our digital archive, which stretches back to 1850. Visit harpers.org save to subscribe for only $16.97.